freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us again today. I want to introduce you to uh, a guest who is not a gigantic social media figure like some of my previous guests, uh, but who's actually a, a, a very good friend of mine, a, a very, very substantial thinker and scholar. We have a lot of, uh, we, we share some, some great mutual friends. His name is Bruce Abramson, and he's just come out with a book called The New Civil War, which is not about war. As he explains, the war has already been declared and we're defending ourselves and I, I'm going to ask him to talk about the book, and I'm going to we're going to focus about we're going to focus on the topic of the usual topic, of course, for the for the Coleman Nation podcast, which is the free expression, the cancel culture stuff. It's part and parcel of the whole story. But first, let me say hi to, to Bruce and ask him to introduce him, himself to listeners. Hi, Ron. Thanks for having me on. It's really a pleasure to be here. And, uh, you know, I was building up my social media presence, um, but I lost half of it in the Great Purge. Really? So, half of it? Yeah. No, that's right. Your numbers half do look a little bit a little bit weaker yeah. than they once were. Gosh. I, I had been around 10,000 and I went back to around five. That's on Twitter, you mean, which is our, you and I both mostly, we're not so much on the, on the, um, the fashion uh, shots on Instagram or the... Uh, the TikTok dancing videos. No, I, I haven't done any of those. I used to be very active on Facebook, but um, on Facebook, I was connected to people I know. And I was seeing them say so many things that were upsetting that it was just destroying my week. On Twitter, I'm mostly connected to people I don't know. So I feel much better <laughs> about it. Well, maybe a few more people will get to know you after after we talk. Or, or you could follow me at BD Abramson. It took me a while to, to remember that it's BD. Yeah. You couldn't get B. Abramson, or you you made a a conscious conscious choice for the to go for the BD. You know, um, I've been on email for so long that that uh, you know I, I I got I've been on I've been on email on the internet since um, 1982, <laughs> um, and and it, and at that point I was able to get things like BDA on various sites and various accounts. Uh, well, Bruce, you know, th that's actually pretty good. You, you give me an excellent entree here to explain. I mean, there's m many of the people listening to this haven't been anywhere since 1982. <laughs> you know, of course, a lot, a lot of a lot of culmination listeners and people who follow me on Twitter are close to my age and your age, but some are quite a bit younger. I wonder if you can explain how it is that you came before we get into the substance, because I do think it's interesting how you came to be so involved to the extent in technology that you were, as you put it, on the internet getting email uh, in the early 80s, when you know, for most, most of us, that was at least 10 or 15 years in the future. And, and by way of doing that, you can also explain your, your background to the listeners. 
Sure. You know, th this is part of the story I tell in the new civil war, but uh, I got to college and I got to college with a list of 17 majors I wanted to do, <laughs> some of which I didn't actually know what they were, but they sounded pretty interesting. Um, and uh, I, I was sort of hit with this with this curse and that what I was most interested in were things like history and geography and political science and philosophy. Um, but I was also really good at science and math. And I discovered fairly early on that in the softer sciences and the social science classes, um, expressing an opinion that uh, didn't even have to differ with the professor, it could just question the professor, uh, would get you in trouble. Um, whereas in math, at least way back then, before we knew that math was racist, um, <laughs> you know, which science has now proved. But uh, way back then in math and stats and computer classes, um, you didn't really get dinged if you asked too many questions, uh, which I like doing. In other words, your premise was, Bruce, that you're going to ask, no matter what the, no matter what the subject is, you're going to ask questions because you like to, you like to engage. You don't like to take anything at face value. So it, it, that in a way that mattered less at that initial stage of your studies than the subject you were asking questions about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and mostly, I mean, I, I like asking questions if there are two things going on. One is there's something that doesn't make sense to me. And two is nobody else seems to be asking the question to get it to make sense mm -hmm. to me. And, and, and I'll do that in a technology setting, and I'll do it in a history setting, and I'll do it in a politics setting. Uh, and of course, as, as we have some shared training, uh, you know, you're taught to do that in the Talmudic setting. So I uh, became a computer science major, and I decided to stick with that and get a doctorate in computer science. And when I uh, started doing research, which was towards the end of my undergraduate years, uh, and certainly when I started grad school in 83, um, I got on the uh, basic email exchanges that were then used by researchers at Columbia, um, which as a major university was connected to what was then known as the ARPANET. Now, had Al, had Al Gore weighed in yet and invented the internet? <laughs> I, I don't think so. I, I, I don't, you know, imagine at that, that point, Al Gore was still a member of the House. I don't even think he was in the Senate yet. Really? But... Uh, at that point, uh, there were me a half a million email addresses um, total. Uh, this was shortly, I got on shortly before they split the ARPANET into ARPANET and MILNET, which was when they pulled out the military addresses, and it was left mostly, um, mostly in academia. And uh, when I got my first job as an assistant professor of computer science in 1987, I got my first set of business cards and they had an email address on it. And all of my friends, other than those in the CS department, made fun of me. Because they were so well, because they, because it was so weird. It, because it, there was an there was because there was an internet address on my business card, as if anybody was going to use that. Right. Now how goofy. In other you had I guess you had friends like like Paul Krugman. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, actually I did, which is part of the problem. <laughs> But all of my friends like Paul Prugman were pre-Nobel. Yeah, so I, I was, I mean, I was in really uh, in the tech world in the earliest of days. And, and I remember the, um, you know, the transition around 94, 95, 96, when all of a sudden everybody and their grandmother got email addresses. 
and um, you couldn't get people to talk to you because all they wanted to do was send email. I found myself, yeah, well, <laughs> somehow, but uh, I, I remember sending sending uh, emails to people saying, this is my last email. If you want to have a conversation, give me a phone call. Stop bombarding me with every third sentence via email. Wait, they were bombarding you with email after, in other words, while talking on the phone? Yeah, I mean, once, once people got their first email addresses on, on AOL or CompuServe. CompuServe, that's where I started. <laughs> right. All, all, all they wanted to do was send email. I couldn't get anybody to pick up the phone. And, and, and it was, I mean, it was awkward because they were emailing the way that we text now. And the transmission wasn't that, you know, wasn't that fast. So you'd have conversations like, uh, do you want to grab dinner? You know, response, yes. 20 minutes later, what are you in the mood for? Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> All right, let's right, let's move ahead a little bit before we start yeah. talking about how, how much fun dial-up was, uh, <laughs> and and you know talk about more about your about your uh, introduction into the, the world that you write about. Sure, sure. Um, so part of the story that I tell in um, in the new Civil War is, I mean, nominally I go through what really had been my favorite course for a while, uh, where I had a professor named Saul, who um, taught us how to be the Messiah, uh, which is a very, very useful skill. Um, like, like, like many young people, um, I, I started college uh, intent on saving the world because... Okay, so you're, you're getting at the lead technologists, techno, the, te the technocratic Messiah? Oh, well, no, no, no. He was, uh, he, he, he was a world order luminary. Governor named Saul Mendelovitz. He's still out there. He's in his 90s now. I think he's an emeritus professor at Rutgers. Um, and his claim to fame, uh, he actually had a far more famous collaborator and co-author by the name of Richard Falk. Oh, gosh. That's a, now, I was in Princeton when Falk was there. Uh, boy, that's a name I haven't heard, I'm glad to say, in a very long time. Richard Falk is, um, for, for those in the audience who don't know him, um, in addition to being an academic, he's a UN advisor who is instrumental in promoting anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, he's not a good man. But uh, he and Saul were out to fix the world. And so we had this great course where we um, studied all the world's problems, uh, which was fun. Um, and then we read a whole bunch of authors' proposals to solve them, which was like science fiction, and I was getting credit for it. Uh, and then Saul told us the right answers. <laughs> and that was where I started getting into trouble. Because some of them seem to leave some certain things unresolved. Yeah. And, and, and this is, I mean, one of the reasons that I was actually a decent fit in the computing world is that I'm very interested in methodology. I am much less concerned about what you think the answer is than I am in how you derived it and how you got there. And um, as anyone who's ever spoken to anyone in the woke world knows, you're never supposed to pop the hood. Right. You're not supposed to pop the hood. And, and, and that's, that's why, I, I'm, you know, one of the aspects of the, of the new thinking, the postmodern, post-deconstructed, uh, woke mentality is that anything that would tend to to get questions like that answered that would pop open the hood that would 
require rigor or mathematical certainty have been derided as colonialism or or racism yeah but we get ahead of ourselves yeah well in any event after that and several similar experiences that were not quite as extreme um i decided to stick to the technical world and i ended up i really like computer science uh it, it it turns out uh you know i was i i never really loved coding i was a pretty good coder in my day i wrote i wrote a lot of um very detailed code but uh and it's fortunate that i got out of it because the type of coding that i liked was algorithms and data structures and a type of coding that i didn't like with systems work and interfaces. Oh, interesting. And if you know anything about what the coding world is about now and what software development is about now is it's 90% plus systems work and interfaces. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you, you, you wanted to basically be what they call a code monkey now. Yeah, and, and I, would not have, I would not have particularly enjoyed it. But uh, what I discovered once I got into the sciences is that um, it was better, but not by a lot not by a lot that, that um, and this is one of the great lessons uh, that I've been writing about a lot lately and that I've, I figured out about 30 years ago and nobody was interested until about five or six years ago, but um, the sciences are corrupt. The academic sciences are corrupt and they're just as corrupt as the social sciences. Uh, there are, um, you know, the, the the entire academic structure is set up to suppress independent thought. Mm -hmm. You know, it, 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 it's baked into the system because inside academia, you get a repetitive system of the same people making the same decisions and then complementing themselves on it. Yeah. Sounds like journalism, actually. It, it well, I mean, as 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 I detail, it, it has worked its way outward. Uh, I coined the term, and I know I coined it because I haven't found it anywhere else. But I coined the term incremental outrageousness. <laughs> and uh, what incremental outrageousness says is that the way that I score points for myself is I look at where the state of the art is, or I look at where things are today, and I find a way to nudge them just a little bit. Right. Mm -hmm. You can do it in sciences. We all do it. We all we all see it in social media. Right. Today's story has to be just a little bit more outrageous than yesterday's. OK. And, and the woke world is very good at this, that they move one, you know, they move one step at a time. Right. If they'd come up 10 years ago uh, or 15 years ago and said men can have babies. Right. That wouldn't have worked. They had to build the foundation to get there one step at a time. Right. And this is actually what happens um, in academia, even in academic science, where the way that you make a name for yourself as a junior person is you go look to see what some famous person in your field has done. And usually in any good research paper, there are you know, questions that remain to be seen and, mm -hmm. and directions for future work. Uh, and something that could be tightened or improved. Uh, and you go ahead and do that. And what you've now done is you've taken the existing frontier of your field and pushed it a half step further in the same direction. Right. So if, if enough people keep moving in the same direction, you end up very, very far from reality. 
and that becomes the message. That becomes the messaging process and the narrative. That becomes the messaging process and the narrative, and everybody has to has to move it forward. And and so you get things, a phenomenon. Is, I had is that different from the, the what the Overton window? We have to say, moving moving the over moving the Overton window. Well, it is a helpful way of moving the Overton window. But one of the things that happens the over the Overton window is, of course, the range of um, policy options that are acceptable in you know in, in in normal society. Things that we can think about. That's one way of moving the Overton window. But we've actually seen the Overton window move at shocking speed over the past year, not incrementally, but because there was a crisis. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the number of um, if you look just at the stretch of March and April 2020. The number of new policy proposals that were suddenly on the table. were, were, were just astounding. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's shut down the American economy. Let's prohibit international travel entirely. Mm -hmm. Let's lock, you know, let, 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 let's lock people in their homes. Let's quarantine healthy people. Let's guarantee a universal uh, income. Oh, not even a universal income. One of the one of the few absurdities that was tossed about that didn't go anywhere, but is now out there, is let's have the government just you know buy up a whole bunch of stock on the stock exchange to keep the markets afloat. I mean, we were going to inject. It, it, it was it was astounding. There was almost nothing you could come out with. That 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 uh, last last March and April that was considered absurd. So would you say that 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 in other words that these what happened did, did this happen first in academia in, in in the world of, of of academic science and 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 that made the made it possible to get where we are today in the world of policy. Well, incremental outrageousness um, drives the entire academy. Right. The difference between the sciences and the social sciences and the reason that the social sciences and humanities are indeed worse is that um, in fields like in schools like science and business in medicine, even in law, there are market corrections. There is some interplay between what goes on in academia and what happens in the real world. And you can only go off on a tangent for so long, right? I mean, people who aren't computer scientists probably don't know this, but um, there were proven limits on how fast uh, internet connectivity could be. That that uh, you know we blew out twenty years ago, right? Right. Well, you know. At some point, you can only pretend that you've proven that something is impossible <laughs> until right. until it's been done and the done consensus. Why consensus? Right. So you do get these market corrections that periodically snap back science and business and whatnot. And the way that they snap back, by the way, is that um, nobody ever loses their job because of it. Mm -hmm. Maybe some junior people who hadn't quite gotten there yet, but but um, you have never heard a story in any field, in any field of any major university saying, wow, you know, now that we've discovered that the conventional wisdom in uh, this branch of science and biology and computing and what, in, in aeronautics was wrong, 
we realized that a lot of our most prominent faculty members have spent their entire career pushing it and shooting down the work that turned out to be right. So we're going to get rid of our entire tenured faculty and bring in people who've been teaching remedial work at community colleges because they insisted on doing things the right way. <laughs> and they have no and, and you talk in your book about incentives. They have, you know, as someone with a with a, you know, an economics orientation. Yeah. They have no incentive to do that. They have every incentive, in fact, to do the contrary, because an admission of fallibility on behalf that's to someone within the academy is fallible is an admission that anyone within the academy is fallible. Yeah. And that means that you can't take have the same moral position when seeking funding and when trying to build on the greatness that you've already created. That's right. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and, and what's more, you bring down the entire field, right? If a prestigious full professor at MIT conceded that everything he'd done in his career pushed the field in the wrong direction and shut down good work, all of the people who built on any of his work along the way would have the rug pulled out from under him. Right. So the, so the only possible market correction would be, I mean, in other words, is there a monopoly on, in other words, you, you, the example you used of the internet speed was that the, there were people outside of the academy incentivized to find faster speeds for, in order to serve the market. Sure. So they did, and the academy had to deal with that. Uh, there's a lot of commercial research and development in lots of other fields. So why isn't, why isn't that good enough in the other fields? Or is, it, or, 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 is, or is that a fallacy? No, first of all, it, it, is, it is good enough in the other fields. And it really is what keeps engineering schools and business schools in better shape than uh, social sciences and humanities departments. Um, the, the way that the market correction plays itself out is that um, these prestigious faculty members will turn on a dime and, 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 and they won't admit that they were pushing the field in exactly the wrong direction. What they'll say is all of the work that we did along the way to discovering, the, to discovering what we now know is the right answer was useful and critical. Right? And now that we know the right answer, we can invert, we can invert our work going forward. And, and, I, and I give some concrete examples of that that I ran across in my own work when I was in academia. Please do. In, in artificial intelligence, uh, you know, in the new civil war. But, um, but, but the point is, you do get these occasional market corrections, but they won't fix your faculties, but they will fix the direction of the field. Um, in science, engineering, business, medicine, law, your professional fields. Uh, when you look at the humanities and, and the social sciences, there are no market corrections to come back. Or they come about, you know, by, by my account, the last shock that was so obvious, that was so clear, that you could not continue along the same direction in social sciences and humanities, was the meltdown of Western civilization between 1914 and 1945. Oh. It, it's very clear. There's been a lot written about this, that the self-perception of Western civilization at the turn of the 20th century and the midpoint of the 20th century were radically different. Sure, sure, of course. And the Oxford Union voting after World War I, that the, they would never 
uh, resolve we, they would they would never go again to war for king and country yeah you know th these were the pe the same people who were who were the, for whom we invented the, the term jingoism only 20 years uh you know earlier let me fast forward this this sure. process that you're talking to which infected what we think of as the as the hard sciences and talk about how it got into policy and and, and how it made it impossible going back to my to my theme at some point because you know we, we, we try not to keep it too long here um how how it made it possible to use these this phenomenon as a way of making it impossible for people to communicate about right and wrong and good and bad well the the stakes here are are enormous Right. And you, you can see it. I mean, one of the clearest places to look is if you look at the um, at the debate over climate change. Right. I mean, let's suppose that somebody could prove conclusively tomorrow that we are not heading into a climate crisis. Okay? Huge amounts of funding. I mean, there is a tremendous amount of money on the line that would simply be redirected. Mm -hmm. OK, you, you, you would have huge numbers in of, theory, in theory, in theory. Well, your whole point is that that's impossible. Well, yeah, well, nobody will let it happen. Right, that's what right. I mean. I mean, nobody, nobody will let it happen. Allegedly, 97% of climate scientists whose funding and prestige is entirely contingent on there being an imminent climate crisis agree that there is an imminent climate crisis. Right, right. <laughs> okay, that doesn't mean they're wrong, but I'm a little bit skeptical. Their, their incentives seem a bit skewed. Yeah, yeah. And you see this a lot. There's actually, I had an article on Real Clear Politics about this yesterday under the, um, under the title of Stop Trusting the Experts with an exclamation. It is astounding how much trust we put in experts on the idea, on the mistaken idea that academic and government scientists are actually committed to science. Mm-hmm. And, and you see this, I mean, take a hypothetical, right? Suppose a company like Monsanto comes out with a new GMO product. Mm -hmm. Well, it's got a bunch of scientists that came up with the product and another bunch of scientists that say that it's safe. And these were all scientists with degrees from the top universities and they're well-paid and well-compensated. There's no question their credentials are impeccable. Now, on the other side, you got a whole bunch of scientists working for universities and for the EPA who say, oh, this isn't safe all GMOs are a problem. People look at this and they say, yeah, you know, the guys working for Monsanto, of course they're going to say it's safe. Of course they're in favor of GMOs. I, I don't put any more stock in that than in the qualified scientists who worked for tobacco companies that said smoking was safe. But these guys over at the EPA and, and academia, you know, their objective, all they care about is science. Right. That's just wrong. <laughs> what they care about is their own prestige and promotions and grants and publications. Right. And power. And power. And power. And, and you saw this. I mean, we've seen this terribly over the past year, um, you know, with, with this COVID pandemic. You know, early on, and I am not an epidemiologist and I am not a biologist, but I do have a very good background in data integrity. Um, so early on, I started looking at some of the data and some of the models that were being used to project the spread and casualty numbers. 
right. COVID. And it was clear to me that the data was garbage. Sure. And it was clear that the data was garbage because there were no consistent definitions and no consistent reporting mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Consistent definitions is something, one of the, one of the points you focus on in, de- in, in debate, of course, on the internet and otherwise, you know, what's racism? I mean, this is something that, again, you're, you, it starts out in science and once it becomes accepted in science, it was always a problem to have inconsistent or vague definitions in social science. Once that becomes accepted in science, social science and policy are gonna naturally fall into line and be even worse off. Yeah, and, and this actually is where I finally take the book to the supposed topic of this discussion, which is, which is freedom of expression, because I actually spent some time teaching people how to have the right conversations um, with, uh, woke friends or more interestingly you know you, you can't you can't convince those who are um already lost this is such an important point bruce and i i myself and you i'm sure you've noticed have expended energy on that both in terms of the israel conflict where i say it's amazing to me that the the friends of ours are messaging sending the kind of messaging that would have been appropriate in the 70s or 80s uh, quoting Golda Meir, yeah, you know who no one involved knows or cares who she was, and not realizing that the debate is an entirely different one, and that you're not convincing anyone about right and wrong. You're rather, it's a meta discussion about tactics, and alliances, and resources, and the same thing also on the internet with debate on the internet, which is where I th- you know I think you're going that. People often say to me, Ron, that, that's somebody with five followers. It's a bot. Why are you, why are you even bothering having, you know, answering them? So I'm not answering it for their sake. And I'm not answering for, for my sake. I'm answering for the sake of the 130,000 people who follow me, of whom a lot of them would like to see. How do you deal with that question? Oh, yeah, a- absolutely. A- absolutely. It's, it's always for the onlookers. You know, I had concrete example. Okay, the... the um, night of the uh, first debate where uh, Donald Trump took on the tag team of Joe Biden and Chris Wallace. Um, you know, I was, you know, I was doing what everybody else was doing was, you know, texting between drinks or drinking between texts or whatever. Mm. And uh, I see someone I'm following, his name is McKay Smith. You look him up, he's a guy who's done some interesting work, uh, but he's also got a reputation to track record for picking stupid fights with people on the internet. But he's got about 100,000 followers. And, uh, you know, he has some throwaway comment about how somebody should tell the Proud Boys that what makes a real man is not a silly mustache, but rather uh, the sensitivity to accept all sorts of different people. Or something like that. Because he's met a lot of Proud Boys and he's found that to be their, their attitude, right. right? So I put in this throwaway comment that I figured nobody will notice, which is, has anybody ever really claimed that having a silly mustache is what makes you a man? <laughs> and he actually answers me. And he goes, yes, look at the Proud Boys. And I go, this is, this is terrific. I would love a link to where somebody made that claim. <laughs> and then I find it very surprising that anybody would ever say it. Could you send me a link? And he writes back and goes, what do you know about the Proud Boys? Mm -hmm. And I write back and I go, you know, not a lot, but it doesn't really matter. I'm just, you quoted something and I'm asking you for a link to an original source. 
And this goes on for about two hours and then people start chiming in. It's like, you know, you're making a fool of yourself. Don't you know who you're arguing with? You know, is this the hill you want to die on? Do you want to stand right. up for the Proud Boys? And right. I just- Oh, keep, exactly, please. Yeah. Oh, the friends I lost over that. All right, and, and I keep responding. I don't know anything about the Proud Boys. All right. I'm just asking for a link to an original source. And, and it goes on like that until finally they all block me. But but that was not something I was engaging in because I expected to get an answer from him. It was something that I was engaging in because that's the exercise. When somebody says something that sounds outrageous, ask for a source. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Donald Trump told everybody that they could get rid of COVID by drinking bleach. Right. Okay. Well, first of all, if anybody comes to me and says the president of the United States told people to drink bleach, I would say there seems to be something wrong with your reporting. And that's true whether I like the president, even if it was Joe Biden, okay? I, I would immediately say, I find that hard to believe. Um, but, but people don't go back and ask these questions. And as you, as you explain in the book, sec between Times versus Sullivan and Section 230, we have reduced, we've not only removed the incentives for people who are who who hold themselves out as the guardians of the truth, the uh, the journalism, the journalists, the, the journalism uh, fraternity, we've not only reduced the incentive for them to 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 dig to the bottom. We've actually um, provided perverse incentives for them not to do so because what what starts out as mere negligence may become actionable malicious malice. If if you dig hard enough to find out whether or not an allegation about a famous person who is your target is 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 um is, is accurate or not, yeah, it's completely inverted. And you know, as as we both know from the law, there are large um, parts of the law where uh, you get in trouble for what you know, but you're not required to know anything. You and I maybe know it, but ex explain to our listeners yeah. in the next uh, five minutes that we're, that we're going to use to to conclude this. Sure. In lots of areas of law, I think of, I mean, we, we run across it all the time in intellectual property. Um, you run across it in tax uh, tax law. But, but basically, you're required to, to say what you know. You can't lie about things. But you're not necessarily required to do the research to make sure that your answers are meaningful or reasonable like in a deposition in litigation. Yep. And, and that's what we've done to journalists, right? That if I heard a rumor that the president told people to drink bleach, I can run right out and write down. If people are saying the president reportedly told people to drink bleach and, you know, that might be negligent reporting, but it's not provably malicious. If I go out and find out what was there and look at it and say, this is just nonsense, but what the hell I'll run with it anyway. Um, now I can get in trouble. Because you also have a positive incentive. In addition to the negative incentive to not find the truth, you have a positive incentive to be what? Yeah. First. Yep. Yeah. I don't want to get scooped. And there's no, the, there's no longer an editor. There's no longer a deadline. You go out there with, what amazes me is that media companies allowed their bylines, their, their, their mastheads to become part of reporters' Twitter handles so that without editorial supervision of any kind, reporters 
were, were allowed to take to the you know take to the social media airwaves with whatever they want to say. They don't have to link to an article that was in any way vetted or supervised by the newspaper, and it becomes a New York Times reporter's story. And and it has so it builds that that brand equity. It takes that brand equity of the New York Times along with it. Oh yeah, it, it's. I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these sources are dissipating their brand equity, but but what's and by the way, I love this bleach story because it was it was you know of all of the stories out there and of all of the defamations that were thrown at Trump, this was this was the most absurd and the least plausible, and nobody ever steps back to think about it. That at the end of the day, where that story ended up was, remember, oh, you know, there were calls about poisoning going to um, emergency wards. Uh, that spiked after that. And, uh, you know, the CEO in charge of Lysol said nobody should drink our stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, who steps back to say, wait a minute. So what I'm supposed to believe here is that there's a group of people in this country who are so confident, you know, who place so <laughs> much trust in what Rachel Maddow said about Donald Trump. Right, right. Okay? We're not talking about people who take as gospel both Rachel Maddow and Donald Trump, and will do it to do something that they know is dangerous. That, that, as, that as adults. Yeah, yeah. With, who, are, who are not like in a group home, but we're actually on their own, making a living. They've maybe even raised children. Yeah. That this sounds to them like a, like a real good idea. Yeah, and, 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 and the people who hear this don't say, this story is nuts. No part of it makes sense. And unfortunately, um, you, you get the flip side, which is that people do wake up eventually and determine that they've been lied to. I think there are a lot of people who've woken up over the past month and decided that maybe Tony Fauci and Bill Gates, who I've been trusting for the past year, have been lying to me. Mm -hmm. And once you know, once you figure out that the official story that you've been fed is a lie, you become susceptible to the next conspiracy theory that comes along. And that's so that so in other words, that, that's an adverse re, that's an a reaction that doesn't necessarily help. It might even make it worse. Oh, it, it's it's terrible. It, 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 it's terrible. Once you determine that the people you've been trusting have been lying to you all along, which in our society should not be hard to determine, you become easy prey for the next guy who comes along and says, here's a story that ties all the pieces together. But in fact, it's not that hard to know that you've been lied to because what you're hearing is incoherent. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to figure out the truth without much information. And it's even harder for me to end this interview. But the problem with you, Bruce, is that you are a master of so many disciplines that 45 minutes can never do you justice. But I, I do think people who have found any aspect of this conversation to be intriguing, and anyone who hasn't has stopped listening a long time ago, <laughs> should, should, should definitely buy the book. It's a fun read. You, you, know, you have a good sense of humor. Thank you. And I, th I think you, 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 you put things in a framework that people are not used to seeing. It's got a forward by our good friend Sebastian Gorka and a blurb from my partner, Harmie Dillon. I didn't even have time to ask you. Maybe we'll finish off by you explaining how it is that Harmie gets, a, a got, you got a blurb from Harmie on your book. How do you know Harmie? Uh, Harmie and I were friends when I used to live in San Francisco. You were the two conservatives there. 
<laughs> we were we 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 were the two conservatives, but what we actually met um, we met at a party somewhere. And uh, this is this is by the way for anybody who's never lived in San Francisco, uh, when you live in a city that doesn't like either families or businesses, the only thing you are allowed to do is make parties for each other. Um, so it, it's very good city for that. Got it. Well, it was anyway. It was. It was. Bruce, incredible. I, I really, um, the time absolutely flew. Uh, I don't want to blow open my format here. So maybe we'll, may, you know, maybe we'll have you again, or maybe you'll have me again or something like that. Great talking to you about the book. Best of luck with it. And in convincing those who don't understand to at least understand that they, do, that they don't understand. Well, thank you very much, Ron. It's a pleasure to be with you and I hope we can do it again. And I'm glad you enjoyed the book. I haven't, I absolutely have. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.